don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. In the normal run of events, you might consider it strange to see the Korean ambassador to Mexico chugging tequila straight from the bottle being cheered on by hundreds of locals outside his office in Mexico City. You could easily take offence at one of the world's iconic footballers taunting a rival team by raising both middle fingers from his seat in a corporate box. You'd certainly be within your rights to wonder why one man's waistcoat has become the obsession of a nation. Hmm. But this is not the normal run of events. This is the World Cup. All of those things have actually happened over the last four weeks. And i got to say... I'm missing it already. Mm. Good morning and welcome to Second Captain Saturday. Hi there, Murph. Well, there is one game left on. There well, is, there's well, actually there are two, two games. games left, yeah, the but... much maligned third, fourth place playoff, mm. which is on tonight, and then the World Cup final tomorrow. So you're right, we should focus on that before we get too wistful about the end of the tournament. A final that will be watched by, I don't know how they measure these things, a billion people, they tend mm. to say. Yeah. That's a lot of eyeballs. Apparently 1.1 billion people... Uh, Throw watched, in an extra <laughs> watched, Point one of a billion. Yeah it's only 100 million people <laughs> To the nearest 100 million people we can say Yeah, yeah 1.1 billion people uh, Going to sit down At whatever time of the day it is in their part of the world No pressure then Yeah I mean it is kind of crazy I mean I was having a look during the week at You know the, the most watched TV sporting Or TV events of all time mm-hmm. And you know it's like uh, Princess Diana's wedding Or Live Aid or Roger Waters live at the, you know, the the wall live in Berlin <laughs> a couple of months after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And the whole idea of it is that as long as you, you know, say the Eurovision or something like that, absolutely massive television audiences. If you're the presenter of the Eurovision, sure, there are a lot of eyeballs on you. But basically, you're a broadcaster, you have a script, as long as... The something, auto cue doesn't go. Yeah, as long as <laughs> something right. absolutely daft yeah. doesn't happen, all you have to do is do your job reasonably con- competently and you won't end up being laughed at by millions of people, you know, and then forevermore on YouTube. The World Cup final, you have no idea what's going to happen. You may be one of the finest athletes in the world in your chosen profession, mm-hmm. but you're also up against 11 other of the finest athletes in your profession. And there's a high potentiality for them to make you look like an idiot. And that's what's so scary about this. I mean, the pressure that's on these individual human beings, you don't really think of them as human beings. You there think are of 22 them, people out there, yeah. Yeah, and they all have exactly the same, you know, nerves and stresses Nerf, that Murph. we all do. This is why you're sitting here in a radio studio yeah. talking about this thing. That may well be the case. I have case. a feeling they're better able to handle pressure maybe than <laughs> yeah. us humble radio yeah. show presenters. You know, one, pressure is one thing, but the the idea that you could look like a complete idiot <laughs> in front of 1.1 billion people, that's a different kind of pressure, I think. Well, Marco Tardelli scored an iconic goal in the 1982 World Cup final and produced probably the most iconic celebration ever. I'd say he's the person that these players need to follow now. I saw a quote from him during the week. After I scored, my whole life passed before me. The same feeling they say you have when you're about to die. I was born with that scream inside me. That was just the moment it came out. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the kind of immortality they can achieve, Mert. They have to look at this positively. Our guest today has never scored a goal in the World Cup final, so far as we know, but he has written brilliantly about the sport before going on to become one of the best-selling authors in the country, Paul Howard is popping into us this morning. What does Paul have to do, Murph, to go about staking a claim to become our greatest non-sports person sports person? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. All right. 
right, this season we'll rank the sporting lives of our guests based on their all-time sporting highlight from their own careers. We'll also assign them an actual sports person who we believe best reflects their abilities and achievements in the athletic sphere. Uh, this might reflect well on our guest. In all pro- probability, it won't. Uh, David Badil's sporting highlight last week was scoring a goal in his 40s in a soccer match uh, in Italy redolent of a 43 year old Christy Ring playing in the Munster Hurling Championship we can perhaps aim for slightly better than that this weekend Badil currently leads on 75 points drop us a text or a tweet with your own World Cup memories if you have any you'd like to share right now we're heading over to our man in Moscow Ken Erdy hi Ken hi Helen how are you Oh, I'm great. I'm more concerned about how you are. The World Cup is almost at an end. I guess you could describe Russia as a controversial choice as host country. You've been there for the whole the whole thing, really, and a little bit beyond. Yeah. What is your impression? What's your main takeaway of how Russia has gone about it? Well, I find Russia quite a charming country, actually. And there's a sort of an endearing thing that all Russians do. And I mean all Russians. Maybe maybe this is more specific to the World Cup, the particular time that the that the you know the World Cup has been. It's not it's not like an, an ordinary time. But every single Russian at some point, if you're speaking to them, it may be the first thing that they say. Uh, they, there may be some pleasantries that they go through first before they get to what they really want to know. But they all say at some point, What do you think of Russia? And it's I find quite quite an endearing thing to hear them say because it actually reminds me a little bit of Ireland. You know, it's like this kind of concern with what a foreigner might think of your country is reminds me a little bit of the way that we, that we are in Ireland. But Ireland is like a small island on the edge of nowhere, surrounded by water that sometimes feels as though the rest of the world doesn't kind of forget it's there. Whereas Russia is this enormous country that is like a world unto itself you know and it's the center of a of a region you know there's lots of countries that sort of look towards russia it's like one of these countries that i would have expected would arrogantly think of itself as the center of the universe like the united states uh britain or france and if you you know if you go to those countries it's not like people are asking oh what do you think you know they 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 either Assume that you think it's great, or they simply don't, don't care. care. Yeah. They don't care what you think. Whereas in Russia, everybody, everybody wants to know. It's sort of, it's, it's like doesn't matter where, where in the country you are, or what kind of person you're speaking to. At some point, they kind of are asking the same question, which I find sort of endearing. And I don't really, and I only kind of recently spotted that they were doing this, and I've started asking, why do you ask that? Like, why do you care what I think? And they're like, oh. We, we think of ourselves as the poorest and the ugliest country. And you're like, it's not. I mean, well, I don't know. Um, probably there are poor and miserable places in Russia as there are in every country. I mean, I'm in Moscow at the moment, and it's quite a magnificent city. Um, probably first among Russian cities in terms of magnificence, yes, I suppose. I don't know if there's too many more Moscows out there uh, in Russia. But... Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I think it's a, you know, it's not as it's not as hostile or scary a country as you could maybe end up thinking of it as. Yeah, I suppose what we're doing on, here is yeah, we're we're maybe separating Russia. I'm as just a spreading state a bit of propaganda. Why can't you let me spread a bit of pro-Russian <laughs> propaganda this this Saturday morning? No, I mean the fact is that you can have it can be a country that can have a bad government that does bad things, and yet be a great country 
which is a beautiful place to be, has has really nice people uh, and people who are surprisingly um, <laughs> surprisingly interested in what you think of them, much more so than you would think of a country of this sort of size and, um, uh, you know, with this kind of uh, history of, of dominating all the neighbours. The Russians care what foreigners think about them. I have lost count of the amount of journalists that I've seen telling the almost identical story of being on a train, finding themselves in a carriage with uh, often a kindly old Russian lady, it seems to be, uh, or maybe a Russian family, getting the old Google Translate going, which seems to be the way to go about things these days. And within about a minute of this, getting almost force-fed food. It seems like the Russians are paranoid about any visitors getting through an entire train journey without uh, practically eating themselves into a coma. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it's it's true. There there is a sort of a, an exaggerated hospitality, I suppose, during the World Cup, and the Google Translate is has become a very big thing. I mean, it is a normal way to sort of communicate. Everyone's kind of aware of it, so people are whipping it out all the whole time, and some funny sentences are coming from it. I mean, you know, someone I was being told by another journalist that a Russian driver saying, you know, so do you like our women? This was this was what Google Translate was saying, and uh, you know they all said, "Well, yes, they seem very very nice." And the driver then starts to put more into Google Translate, and then the voice comes out saying, "They are taciturn and like gifts. <laughs> they, they they like rich men with style, uh, and so on." And uh, <laughs> Google Translate was saying all this stuff. So uh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's it's it's. It's kind of useful. It is useful if you if you actually need to communicate with someone. I mean, there, I was in a phone shop. I need to get like a SIM card, and it was it was useful in that case because we were both sort of we both were patient. Like, we're, okay, let's just figure this out. This is the only way to do this. But it's not it's not really a replacement for proper communication because it takes too long. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, and it's and it's sort of inaccurate. It doesn't hear. You know, you can you can do the voice input, which which speeds it up a bit, but then it's more inaccurate in terms of it doesn't understand what you're saying. So it just spews out a load of nonsense and you're looking at each other, you know, I think there's still a ways to go before it, you know, you can just go and naturally speak to somebody in like your language and then they can speak in their language. But you know, even if Google Translate is translating it, you're, if you're speaking to each other in different languages, on, are you even really speaking to each other at all? That's a question I suppose we're hopefully going to see answered in our own lifetimes. Yeah, maybe you are. Maybe maybe this whole uh, obsession with language has been overdone for a long time. Well, listen, we'll get back to you before the end of the show on today's game, if that sounds okay to you. Sounds great, Aunt. If you'd like to get in touch with us in the meantime, you can drop us a text on 51551. Tweet at Second Captains. For any melancholic England fans listening, we're going all the way back to 1966. What a year for our first tune. Paul Howard is on the way. This is Second Captain Saturday.
Yeah, that's some Captain Beefheart and I'm Glad from 1966. A little less hopeful than Three Lines, which we played last week, but an appropriate tone, I think, for the week that's in it. You'll know our next guest this morning as one of this country's most successful writers, the creator of Russell Carroll Kelly, and the only man in Ireland who could have dreamt up Copperface Jacks the musical. <laughs> but before all that, he was one of Ireland's top sports writers. Before that again, he was a young fella growing up in Dublin probably counting down the hours on days like these. Just one more sleep to go <laughs> until the World Cup final. Paul Howard, great to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure. I think we've all been spared a certain amount of heavy soul searching with England being eliminated in <laughs> yeah. the semi-finals. Were you cheering them on? Did you want to see I them was, out there? I was, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was born in England and I, I, I sort of grew to love football living in England. Uh, even though, you know, my parents were Irish and we, we sort of lived in an Irish community. It was all it was all football. And so I supported the England team in the semi 70s, they never qualified for anything like, you know, so uh, my first my first World Cup that I kind of was really conscious of was 78 and England weren't in that. So it was it was Scotland then. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so before I got sort of sucked into the soap opera of England being in the World Cup, I was just gripped by the uh, by the soap opera of Scotland, which actually was just as interesting because they always went off with exactly the same, certainly in 78, with the same sense of expectations. Like they had uh, Ali McLeod uh, was the manager and this great, you know, talk about uh, Three Lions. Their version was, you know, we're on the march with Ali's army mm-hmm. and uh, we'll really shake them up when we win the World Cup. And really, when you look at that team, they should, you know, they had Doug Leash and, you know, it was a great team and Asa Hartford and... Sunez, um, I think. And Sunez, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then they, they just had this word, they fell apart, you know, and Willie Johnson got sent home for uh, taking a, a sleeping pill. <laughs> um, they got beaten by... Peru, they drew with Iran and then at the end they just pulled it out of the fire with this incredible performance against Holland which, you know, I mean Archie Gemmell's goal, I'll never ever forget <laughs> that's one of the first goals I ever sort of remember kind of committing to memory so I could do it myself out in the road or, yeah, you yeah. know, some version of it in my head. So how many years, what, what age were you when you moved to Ireland then? So uh, we moved to Ireland in 79 so I was 8 okay. when we moved here, yeah. And you moved over, presumably, as the English kid, was it? Yeah, how, how, yeah. How you would have been Yeah. My, my dad said that if Margaret Thatcher won the 1979 general election, we'd move back to Ireland. And we were gone within four weeks. Wow. wow. Man yeah. of his word. <laughs> Man of his word. And, and just, yeah, he'd £100 in his pocket, like for well, four why, kids. Uh, well, why did he move? Did he, uh, was he that... P- politically against what she was going to yeah, bring. Yeah, I mean, I suppose economically as well, he knew it wasn't because we were working class because dad, dad worked in the motor industry in um, in Luton. There was a lot of Irish people, there's a lot of Irish communities there and uh, he'd worked in Vauxhall and he worked in a company called Skeff that made ball bearings for engines. And just he just had a sense that it wasn't going to be good news. Thatcher's and her economic policies weren't going to be good news for people like us. And he was right, you know, within, I think, about, Six months of her coming to power, his the factory where he worked was on a three day week, mm-hmm. so uh, never looked over his shoulder, you know. But yeah, I was an Irish, I was an English kid living in Ireland, having grown up in England, thinking I was Irish. I'm suddenly very, very English, and I have this very. I've got. I had one of those. Uh, you what, mate? English accent. <laughs> got almost for, comedy English accent. Yeah, 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 which actually people thought was a bit cute for about two years uh, until the hunger strikes happened, and there was suddenly there was all this anti. Uh, English feeling in in Ireland, you know, and it was I was very conscious of it in school, and kids were very conscious of what was happening.
happening and it was an incentive to lose the accent quite quickly <laughs> was it tricky for you around that time yeah yeah it was yeah i mean it was um it's kind of hard to conceive of that now that that kids would be that plugged into to what was going on but they were clearly hearing things at home and bringing that sort of anti-English hatred into school so yeah, yeah copped a lot of it and it's not even it's not even a political thing it's kind of a thing in the marrow of the country yeah it's a visceral that sort anti-English of a... thing and, it, and it's just sort of parrot phrases you know smash H block and all that but that's what we lived with you know and uh, just always fighting in school and you know never winning <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's a funny one when you're only nine or ten years of age I don't know how you even did you, did you go to your parents and ask them what are the hunger strikes? What's going on? Were, yeah, were you I, I astute enough as a kid to understand a little bit? Of it? A little bit. I remember when we moved first, being you know kind of really feeling that I, w- I was living in a foreign country, like you know, which I mean, it is a foreign country, but you know, culturally and you know every other way, uh, there were so many connections. But uh, I remember walking through Dunleary and seeing for the first time the top of the Sally Noggin Hill the words smash H block and I remember asking my mother what that was about and she kind of gave me a really really kind of abbreviated version of of, of history I remember going to school and I remember a teacher uh, calling me Sassanok in Irish and I had no idea what <laughs> Sassanok meant and then I found out later on it was uh, a term of contempt for English people and I remember sitting in a headmaster's office while they were while the school was trying to find out which uh, you know what our kind of equivalent educational standard was from transferring from England to Ireland, and I remember just looking around the wall at you know a picture of Michael Collins and the Proclamation of Independence, and just feeling like uh, you know I didn't I didn't realise our countries were at war, and there was all this sort of mem- you know kind of paraphernalia yeah. of war, so it felt to my eight year old self. So yeah, it was quite. Um, it was quite uh, a land when we arrived in Irish in Ireland and realised actually you're not Irish, you're English. And how Irish was your upbringing in England? Like, was there a preparation there? Maybe not, not really. Like, we didn't play Gaelic football, or you know, we didn't go to Irish dancing. We were spared that, thankfully. But <laughs> you know, like, we went to a school called um, uh, Saint Vincent's Roman Catholic Lower School, which is very, very Irish. Like, all of our friends in school were called O'Hare. Murphy, Byrne, Marr, they were all uh, second generation Irish kids uh, whose fathers, like mine, worked in the motor industry in Luton. And uh, so, yeah, it was just, it was a bit odd kind of living there with a real sense of your Irishness, but realising when you got here, you were kind of something else. Um, I kind of had this dual um, allegiance then, you know, I supported the Ireland, Ireland football team, but I always supported the England team as well, you know, through through the 80s. And they were always just such <laughs> good fun as well. But I never had any kind of, you know, desire to sort of throw off my Englishness. You know, my dad would always say that, you know, my dad always kind of felt that the English were the most tolerant people in the world, you know. Um, was that his, his experience? Of yeah, it? that was his experience. I mean, I know a lot of people have other experiences, but, you know, like, you know, one or two of his brothers who lived in London were going on all the all the marches in London, you know, the, uh, you know, give Ireland back to the Irish marches in London. And, you know, and they're sort of saying, God, do you get a lot of hassle from the police over here? My dad said, no, because I'm not, I'm not at the front of these marches <laughs> with you. But, um but he, my dad worked as a postman in London in the 70s and was delivering parcels uh, in Regent Street, you know, and right in the centre of London uh, during the letter bomb and parcel mm. bomb campaign. And he said, 
he got no hassle whatsoever you know that english people were nothing but kind and understanding and compassionate to you know the irish point of view where did your interest in sport fit into all this did that help you fit in when you when you came um, to Ireland? i don't think so because i was always into i i think for any uh, any young boy growing up um but no matter where he is, uh, sport like an interest in sport will help him fit in because it's just a fact that most kids are interested in sport. And where I grew up in Ballybrack, uh, we grew up on a council estate in Ballybrack, and you know, we, our house was four boys in our house, and our mother opened the door at about eight o'clock in the morning and threw us out the road, <laughs> and uh, and then we sort of came home at ten o'clock at night, like you know, and and no, we were never far from the house. We were sort of there's, there was a sort of a square in front of the house of concrete. We just played football all day, just endless games of Happy football days. in which the teams would change. So the team you started off with, there was no players left from that team uh, three hours later when the <laughs> score got to 37, 32. <laughs> and no matter what the score was at the end of the day, it was next goal wins, you know? Yeah. And there was no cars, like hardly any, about 10 people in Cromlech Fields had a car. Uh, so... You know, occasionally someone would shout car and a car would drive by and then the game just proceeded, you know. And I remember uh, we we had uh, a lot of Spanish students came to Ballybrack, you know, families took in students. And I remember during the 1982 World Cup, uh, there was suddenly this infusion of Galacticos like because these <laughs> Spanish kids would come and play with us you know and they were all called like Lopez they all the names like Lopez you know and they smelt of they used to wear this sort of cologne like you know and but I, I subsequently discovered it was a thing called Nanuco right. and where I, I caught, caught a smell of it one day I knew I was friends with a girl and I caught a smell of it I said what's that said, it's Nanuco I said that's Spanish students my smell. childhood you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah and I got a whiff of it and it brought me back instantly, you know. <laughs> but it, those the Spanish students just added this glamour to our matches, you know. So we'd kind of replay those games. And around that time, so 82, Northern Ireland beat um, uh, Spain, Spain yeah. in the World Cup. And, you know, this was just, you know, this kind of brought an extra... Because we identified with Northern Ireland, you know, because we, we were football fans. We knew, we knew it wasn't Ireland, but it was kind of Ireland because it was Northern Ireland. And... Uh, yeah, and and I remember those matches really well. You know, there's a little bit of needle in it, but the the continental glamour was just great. <laughs> that that '82 World Cup, well, the final was between Italy and West Germany. Mm. It was memorable for you for another reason. <laughs> I believe it was very memorable. Yeah, see, I loved that World Cup, and and it's the first one that really, really made an impression on me. And that Italy team as well. You know, they were they were brilliant. And uh, but the day of the final. Everybody wanted Germany to lose because they were the most hated team, I think, ever to get to a final uh, because they had kind of conned Algeria uh, out of a place in the second round by contriving a nil-nil with Austria, one-nil with Austria, uh, which suited both teams. And then the semi-final when Schumacher uh, clotheslined uh, Patrick Battiston. That's the, the German goalkeeper, yeah. yeah. And... Um, and, you know, there were all these reports on BBC, on BBC saying he, he might, you know, he's been taken to hospital, he might die, you know. So we, we hated Germany. So we were just waiting to see them get beaten. And the day of the final, it's about three hours before the match, the pipe went. 
And, you know, in the days before there were dodgy boxes, you know, or illegal downloading, there was piping yourself into the cable link box. <laughs> and this was, uh, I won't say it was common in our estate, but but it happened, you know, it happened. But what would happen is if you piped in incorrectly, if you didn't do the why, if you didn't know what you were doing, yeah. you would just take the whole estate down. Okay. So about three hours before the World Cup final, the pipe goes, you've just got that black and white fuzz on yeah. the television. And my the most dad, helpless, helpless feeling of them all. Yeah. Looking yeah. at that TV. You're just and looking the- at thinking, is it coming back? You've no idea. So my dad decided to take matters into his hand and he uh, he went off to find who had piped in. And he was gone about 15 minutes. He walked all over, all over Ballybrack. And he finally found a man up a ladder uh, piping himself into television. <laughs> and my dad wasn't, you know, he didn't use bad language. He wasn't a violent man at all, but he used a lot of choice language to this man and uh, eventually came home and, you know, so came back into the house and we're all sort of sitting there with the thing on mute watching Wonders and going to come back and there's a ring on the door. And I went out and answered and there's two men standing there and one of them said, is your father home? And I went in and got dad. And it was Garda Special Branch. <laughs> and uh, they said, uh, Mr. Howard, um, I'm not sure if you're aware of, it, of this, but the man you've just threatened, uh, we believe he's a serving member of the IRA. Oh, my God. And uh, <laughs> so <laughs> it was, uh, it, and, and the pipe came back, but it, it sort of gave a bit of a fraught feeling to the <laughs> evening after that. You know, it kind of, kind of strained things a little bit. And it turned out he was, uh, he was actually a member of the IRA, you know. I remember he used to go on these fishing trips with his rod and he'd never come back with any fish. <laughs> and that was kind of the first. Maybe he was just a lucky you know. ball. You know? No, no, no. He he was he was um, he believed in a thirty-two county independent republic in which the television was free. <laughs> <laughs> but we had him. I remember that World Cup in particular. The, I think the reason it made such an impression on me was we got our first video recorder about a month before the World Cup, and it was a VHS top loader and yep. they were just very very new at the time I think it cost about 700 quid or something <laughs> yeah, which was yeah. it's a lot of money now never mind back in 1982 and um, we taped at the final but we taped Brazil uh, against Italy which for me is still my favourite World Cup match of all time and I probably watched that match a hundred times like every single day of the summer if it was raining outside mm-hmm. we would put Brazil and Italy on to the point where we would go out and we would replay uh, John Motson's commentary when we were, you know, trying to score goals. And I can remember when when uh, Socrates scored uh, the second Brazil goal, he said, John Motson said, uh, Socrates uh, sums up the philosophy of Brazilian football, how to play when you're behind. This is absolutely ridiculous, right? Because in our house, we had uh, a BBC sport video called The Boys from Brazil, which is basically every single one of Brazil's goals from the World Cup. Okay. Uh, And it was released in uh, like 1988 or something. Yeah. And literally that exact phrase (laughs) was said in our house a million times. Yeah. It starts with (laughs) Zico. Oh, what a turn. He's through Gentile. Socrates is in here. And and we happen to know the whole thing just because... Just from repeated watching. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like we had like four videos. Yeah. There was uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Ghostbusters... (laughs) Top uh, the, boy, the boys from Brazil and match of the seventies, <laughs> which right. was a ser- like a, yeah. a video of like the best goals from the nineteen seventies, basically. Yeah. But the, yeah, the, like that, that goal, the, the, that game, and that eighty two World Cup in general, the the, the goals that Brazil scored that were so amazing. They were amazing, and the two against Russia, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny because the World Cup then it seemed it seemed so far away, and I think that was part of 
the reason, you know, it turned me on so much as a kid and it doesn't so much now. I enjoy watching the matches, but there was something otherworldly about those early World Cups. Um, all World Cups in those days looked uh, like themselves. No, they didn't look like any other World Cup. Like 66 looked different to 70, 74, 78, 82. It's the picture quality, you know, the poor picture quality. And then also the, you know, the the, the commentary done down a phone line, which makes it sound like it's just so far away. <laughs> and all World Cups, I think since probably... 2002 have looked the same like I can't if I see footage from South Africa or Germany or uh, Japan Korea maybe Japan Korea did look a little bit different but say this one and the previous two previous three I can't really tell the difference until I actually find out who's Mm -hmm. playing yeah it's even the stadia you know yeah. all the dugouts in all the stadiums in Russia look exactly the same (laughs) yeah and it's kind of sad you know that there's an idea of like a cookie cutter FIFA World Cup stadium that everyone has to adhere to yeah. and regardless of what country you're in yeah. all the stadiums have to look pretty much exactly the same they've homogenised the whole, everything they've standardised everything across you know stadia telecommunications you know picture quality all that kind of stuff everybody takes the same feed as well um, but then there's other bits and actually the state you're right about the stadia the, the, there was a great thing in, um, in Argentina in 78 which was players coming up from under the ground, the dressing rooms were yeah. under the ground, and they would they would sort of walk up the steps, and it was very glad- gladiatorial um, to see them sort of walking up and then stepping onto the pitch. Uh, but not now, you know, it's just all the same, really, isn't it? We haven't got a chronicle of the 1982 World Cup, Paul, but you haven't good enough to bring us in. You might, you might describe what this is that you've handed over to me here. Well, it's a copy book, yeah. uh, and it was, as you can see, it's a, it says English poetry, prose, and short stories. Um, and uh, it's one of those standard exercise books that any child from the 1970s <laughs> and 80s in Ireland will recognise. I've crossed out English <laughs> poetry and short stories. And I obviously tore out all the front pages uh, with notes about Paddy Kavna, etc. And I turned it into a kind of World Cup journal. Yeah, it's, it's titled World Cup Diary 1986. That's yeah. written uh, so I was about 15 the real then. And I, I was really, really passionate about like becoming a football writer that's all I wanted to do in my life was to become a football writer so during that World Cup I I did um, I, I kept this diary so every single match I wrote down the teams yeah. uh, the scores red and yellow cards and then a little kind of two paragraph one or two paragraph commentary I'm on looking at a match. couple of them here this is a lot more detailed than what most of us did most <laughs> of us write out our wall chart and that's about it <laughs> Uh, do you mind if I read a little bit? No, from, go, go from for it. Yeah. The, the famous England... People can't see me blushing. Argentina here, so. <laughs> 2, England 1. This is the famous Hand of God Gamer. Okay, yeah. The match report. Attendance, 115,000. Maybe you might have been gilding the lily there. <laughs> there were two million people at this yeah. game. Yeah. Okay, so here goes. Maradona was spectacular. In the second half, a slice back pass gave Maradona a chance. And as he jumped with Shilton, he seemed to punch it in. But the goal stood. Mm. <laughs> I'm on the Very diplomatically on done there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> May have been a punch. I feel kind of useless now. This is the best. I can, you can leave through this during the break. This is the best I could do. World Cup 90. Oh, yeah. It's my yeah. Italian 90 wall chart there. Oh, wow. Mm. Really careful what I'm doing. Yeah, it's, oh, sorry. Yeah, basically yeah, a family heirloom there. Wow, yeah. look at that. Yeah, Did yeah. you have the milk bottle? I had the milk, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the whole shebang, yeah. 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 The key point is the very top in the middle there, if you want to. Winners, Germany, West Germany, brackets, fact. 
What's mm. that? That's the fact. It, it becomes clear at the next line there, oh, I think, Paul. Best team, Ireland. Not a fact, but true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've got two huge questions that are going to be answered this weekend. Can a country smaller than Ireland win a World Cup? And will Paul Howard knock David Baddiel off top spot in a race to find this season's greatest non-sports person, sports person? We'll find out the answer to one of those questions anyway after the break. Second captain, first captain, whatever. You can tweet us at Second Captains if you want to get involved this morning. Paul Howard is our guest on Second Captain Saturday as we count down to tomorrow's World Cup final. Paul's latest project is Copperface Jacks the Musical. It opened on Tuesday night and it runs until the 12th of August at the Olympia. So get along and see that if you can. All the hard work you described earlier, Paul, as a young lad paid off because you ended up covering the World Cup as a journalist in 2002. We probably don't need to get into the weeds on that one, but Roy Keane, the star of the show back then, is dividing a nation once again in 2018. The nation in this case is England. He was on ITV's panel for the semi-final defeat. People will be aware of this clip, I'm sure, at this stage. He, he just sort of felt that one or two of the English pundits had been getting ahead of themselves, including his fellow ITV panelist, Ian Wright. Yes. Take a one game as a Before the game, everybody one game is thinking that we'd beat the final. Before the game, about the final. Yeah, everybody thought that we'd beat Croatia before the game. Yeah, Why should game. I be excited about that? <laughs> you know how hard it is to get to these big finals, or even get to a World Cup. Final. You're talking about finals. <laughs> final. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm yeah. talking about. Uh, Relax yourself. Yeah, that is Ian Wright mimicking Roy Keane saying the word final in a Cork accent in an ITV studio. It's been a strange old World <laughs> Cup ball. What Ed Miliband led the criticism of Roy Keane as opposed to Ian Wright. He said, Roy Keane is just awful. I am sorry. Yeah. What do you make of him? What do you make of his interjections there? I wouldn't there? think Roy Keane would be Ed Miliband's kind of guy. <laughs> and I'd, I'd say vice versa, you know. Um, I, I, I mean, a couple of things. I, I think, I think, I, I don't know what's happened to to Roy Keane's sense of humour. You know, there's, and I know he's, I know it's a gig, and I know that's, you know, that's what he does, and that's what they want him to do when they book him. You know, he's there to be uh, the contrary voice on the panel. But I don't know. There, there's no, there's sort of no levity uh, about Roy Keane anymore. You know that he, um, even in that moment, he just looked like he wanted to kill Ian Wright, and did several times. You know, and I. When I heard him, you know, when he went off, I immediately thought about uh, the the famous Manchester United uh, television interview that nobody has ever seen, you know, and I kind of you kind of got an impression of what that might have been like. Mm. Is he not there um, for that role, though? They, they have their three English pundits. They've obviously brought Roy Keane in for a specific yeah. reason. And yeah. that is, if things go wrong for England, he'll be the only one who will lay down some home truths. Yeah, because he's, he's a sober head, you know, and he's completely right what he said. You know, everybody in England got completely carried away by it. Um, it is refreshing, actually, that they had that balance on the panel because usually they don't, you know. Um, usually they just sort of let the... Sort of, because I, I watched I watched a day of Sky News yesterday uh, before the match, and it was the most jingoistic day of television. I had it on in the background while I was doing some work, and it, the, the stories on it were, you know, the 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 Thai children trapped in the cave who were freed by British technology. They kept emphasising it was British technology, and you know the the centenary of the RAF and the red arrows flying over Buckingham Palace. They had, you know, Boris Johnson is coming, you know, he's going to come to lead Britain to a glorious new future. And 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 then England, you know, uh, are going to win the World, World Cup. Yeah. And, and, and you do out. need a bit, you need an antidote. You need some, and, and Roy Keane is that, but I, I, I don't know, it, it, it just got a bit serious. I, I find that, thing really really uncomfortable to watch even to listen back to because uh, ah, <laughs> it's, gonna... it's it's 
the entertainment industry though isn't it you yeah. kind of, it's a necessary kind of palliative it. you know I, the medicine doesn't always go down yeah. easy Paul you I, I know? did notice his, his the pitch of his voice getting slightly higher the as, outrage as the conversation isn't it? beforehand yeah, yeah. went along but he, the points he was making were, were valid enough mm. he was saying this is a huge opportunity missed by the England team he drove that home a few times and it just started getting a little bit testier and then suddenly himself and Ian Wright, who probably personality-wise are set up to clash anyway, yeah. have that kind of a... Yeah, kind of a but the thing, with, the thing with Roy Keane, Roy Keane is saying, you know, celebrate after the final. But I remember Roy Keane saying in an interview once he never celebrated any uh, trophy he ever won in his life. It was always about, right, I've won that, now it's the next thing. Yeah. And at the end of a season, he was always thinking about next season. Uh, and it's probably one of his great failings as a, as a manager is he he doesn't seem to be able to understand that people are different, that not everybody is, is hardwired the way he is. Um, certainly Ian Wright isn't, you know. Um, and even when he was when he was a manager, you know, when he was going to sign Robbie Savage, and actually Robbie Savage would have done a very good job for him, you know. And he decided not to sign him because Robbie Savage's uh, voicemail message began with, what's up? <laughs> oh, yeah, and he yeah. decided, no, no, he's not the man for not me. Not for me, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, I kind of think that only brings you so far. There's no, I know we're not talking about Roy Keane's kind of character here, you know, because it is just a television moment. But, but he has got that thing in his character that he's just he he doesn't have that kind of empathy. You know, he's not able to see that. Well, Ian Wright is that kind of a character. It doesn't make him doesn't make him a bad person. The time has come, Paul, to test your own sporting credentials. Here, we've got into a little bit already. You're obviously a big footballer. Any, <laughs> oh, were there any other sports? Or was it all pretty much football down to dust? Oh, uh, boxing. I love. I mean, I I I was a I was a kind of kid. I was a kid during the sort of Barry McGuigan, Dave Boy McCauley era. You know, so um, yeah, mad about boxing, but. Yeah, those two sports mostly. So competitively, what position would you have played in football? What kind of a player were you? I was always the last picked um, on the team. I was always part of the the, the group uh, that were that you know at the end of picking the team, they would say, "Oh, you can have them." I was always one of the them. <laughs> um, uh, but then I'd always cause I'd always like to say I'd always cause a surprise or two in the match, you know. But I'd kind of mm. hang around the goal. A lodger, you were called if you hung around the goal. A lodger, a lodger, yeah. Okay. And if a ball came loose, I would be there to put it in the back Hatching. of the net. Yeah, as yeah. long as it didn't. I'm, I'm not on the head though, because I had glasses. I did score a header once. Uh, <laughs> my proudest moment for Lachlanstown boys. Oh, hold on, are we get your sporting highlight here. This is the key moment. Oh right, okay. is this the highlight well, of your? Right, yeah, yeah this is it. Yeah, yeah. Full consideration here. Yeah, a header. Lachlanstown boys under 11s. Uh, we were playing Carrigley um, in a uh, meaningless uh, mid table. No, it would have been a meaningless mid table about three matches into the season game. <laughs> <laughs> we were fighting for mid table mediocrity. And uh, yeah, the ball came across. And um, I had kind of black national health glasses at the time. <laughs> and um, it was a dip. I had to dip to head it into the goal. And uh, it went in. And um, but it hit my glasses in such a way that it kind of bent them out of shape a little bit. Like the, one of the earpieces was a bit kind of wonky yeah. afterwards. Listen, you got to stick your head in where you know you you wouldn't put a shovel. That was my philosophy as a footballer, and uh, we were only entitled to a pair of free national health glasses every eighteen months, and I wore those for about nine months with a wonky earpiece, uh, just for that goal, and I didn't regret it not for a minute. Was there genuinely when you were a kid wearing glasses playing football? Were you self conscious about that? Nah, not really. 
it's the days before Edgar Davids. I would have loved a, a pair of those <laughs> Davids ones, you know. But no, no, like glasses were just so much. I, I've been wearing glasses since I think it was two or something, you know. And before I even had proper ears to hang them on, I had <laughs> I had them on an elastic. Um, and um, so it didn't bother me at all. But in the summer when you'd be playing, you'd be really sweaty and they'd always keep falling down on your face. I'd have to keep pushing them up and everything. But I was more, I was more self-conscious without them because I was completely blind without them. Right. Couldn't see anything. So was this header a winner? Do you remember? Nobody's going to be able to verify this one way or the other, Paul. So it, was, it, was, yes, it, it was. It was. It was. <laughs> like, I could say it was a winner, but it, it wasn't. No, we, we lost 3-1. <laughs> oh, no. You're cursed with a photographic memory. And on this occasion, <laughs> surely did, you're doing yourself no favours here. No, we, we, we did lose that match. But uh, I, I, I felt like a winner that day because I had... I had had some personal achievement that nobody else could share in. (laughs) That's what it's all about. And it's an impressive sporting highlight, no doubt. But will it be enough to lift you above David Baddiel? Murph, would you please rate this sporting life of Paul Howard? You don't understand. I could have had class. You don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. What do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Yes, Paul, it's time to rank your sporting highlight and identify the sports person that we feel most closely resembles your sporting personality. And then once we've handed you your score out of 100, you'd be made aware of your fit in the quest to be named this year's greatest non-sports person sports person. <laughs> so your sporting highlight is, to be fair, a doozy, as you've just told us there. Uh, to score a header against the mud of Carrick Lee in under-11 football is one thing. To score a header and trust that your 1980s NHS glasses weren't going to splinter into a thousand pieces... <laughs> While you had your eyes shut, heading, and they were shut, I'm sure. I mean, we, can, we can pretty much vouch for that. That's an act of true bravery. Uh, your bucolic, innocent good looks, chronic short-sightedness, and famously laissez-faire attitudes towards illegal doping remind me of nothing more than the late, great, bespectacled 80s cyclist Laurent Fignon. Uh, Laurent, of course, tested positive for amphetamines, but at least he agreed to testing. Your biological passport from that period remains suspiciously... Untraceable. So taking all that into account, we'll award you a score of 72 points ah, pending uh, a visit to doping control to finally find out if you were in fact juicing during your time at the Lachlanstown Boys under 11. So Paul Howard, this has been your sporting life. It's not a bad That's score. Good. Paul, very quickly, who's going to win the World Cup? Uh, France. I think, I think, I, I don't think it's going to be close. I think France are going to win three. Listen, Paul Howard, you've been brilliant. Thank you so much. Sure. Round of applause, please. Thank Thanks you. Thanks so much. The jam there with That's Entertainment on Second Captain Saturday. Don't worry, Murph. Ian Wright and Roy Keane have made up. Mm, Wright tweeted a photo of the two of them arm in arm. Me and my mate. Roy Keane, a particularly impressive, loud t-shirt. It was. I, I liked it, I liked it. sort of t-shirt you'd expect a 16-year-old boy to be wearing, <laughs> but that's fine. That's fine, Roy. He's still got, a, still got the boyish good looks. Tweet from Shane and Cork. Hi, lads. I feel Paul's pain. Wore specs as a kid too, and I've passed the short sh- short-sightedness to the kids. Thankfully, technology means they won't have to go through the same thing. Now, if they can just sort out baldness... 
I feel your pain, Shane. I do feel your pain. Tweet from Dazoo. Paul Howard and second captains bringing back memories of the immortal street football phrase from the summer of the 1982 World Cup. Who do you think you are? Paolo Rossi? (laughs) I like it. Paul mentioned the incident in that World Cup between Harold Schumacher and Patrick Badestan. This was the most infamous foul in World Cup history. German goalkeeper takes out French player who was in on goal. Badestan lost two teeth, broke three ribs, damaged his back which is still affects him today, apparently, and no foul was given. Mm. So this led to essentially a diplomatic incident between the countries. Helmut Schmidt and Francois Mitterrand, mm-hmm. men, the men in charge of Germany and France, respectively, at the time, had to issue a joint press release to ease tensions. And just, you know, there was some historical baggage there too. Yeah. So they had to be This concerned. is the sort of madness that you only get with a World Cup. Completely, but I mean, yeah. if, if you've never seen the foul, I mean... Prepare yourself oh, and then look it up on YouTube. It is Schumacher did tackle. travel to Mets a few weeks later on the day before Badistan's wedding to apologise in person, but then found there were a load of French media there and felt he was ambushed. So just hightailed it out of there and was even more <laughs> of an enemy. Eventually, they played a friendly a couple of years later and apparently swapped jerseys in the dressing room afterwards. So they mm. did it. They, well, they didn't make up, but they did what they had to do in a quiet, private setting. Let's get back to Ken in Moscow before we go. Ken, we were talking to Philippe Auclair during the week, the French journalist, who said that the semi-final defeat that France had to West Germany that we mentioned there remains the defining game in their history, more so than actually winning the World Cup in 1998 because of the thrilling football they played, which he feels for people of his generation was more in tune with the national psyche, with the way French people like to think about themselves. Would you like to see some old-school Gallic flair on show today? I would, but I've come to terms with it. You know, I've come to terms with the fact that it could happen by accident. You know, the ball is going to get to the feet of Kylian Mbappe a few times. And Antoine Griezmann too. You know, I don't want to be mean to Greasy. Uh, the ball will get to their feet and they can do good things with it. I mean, Mbappe is an exciting player to watch. I mean, the, the, the France team as a whole is not that exciting. And um, they're a careful team. They try to avoid mistakes. Uh, the Croatian team is much more interesting to watch. They're a complete mess. Nobody has any idea, least of all them, what's about to happen next. But they, you know, they really, they really want. They've got some great players. They've got good players in the most important position, in the middle of the field. So they're the guys who get the ball, who get the ball most. And usually, when they're on the ball, they make the right decision. So. I can't completely discount Croatia, although I am. I'm a little bit worried that you know, if, if particularly France score the first goal, that Croatia might end up getting it. Might, it might end up being too easy for France. You know, I just think that they they're stronger anyway. They've had an extra day's rest. They've effectively Croatia have played an extra match with all the extra time that they've played. I mean, they've literally played 90 minutes of extra time. So, you know, they've got all these disadvantages going in. They've got all these injuries and France have much better much better players everything belongs to France winning and I'm still not 100% convinced they're going to do it <laughs> All right. so let's wait and see Ken enjoy the game and safe home buddy thanks Alan. thanks Kieran I look forward to seeing you guys on Monday great so we've got a tweet in here from Zico Oh, the real Zico I assume yeah absolutely yeah. Socrates will be next is it bad that my highlight of the World Cup was Roy Keane doubling down on England's pain not one of their pundits or media would have done it the truth hurts but it's also lots of fun to watch. <laughs> you're certainly not the only one. I mean, it's it's maybe a little bit cheap, but mm. I'm sure you're not the only person listening who felt that way. No, there Zico. were just a few too many good games and good goals for that to be your 
absolute highlight, surely. The World Cup isn't the only huge event taking place this weekend. There's a very epic day of Wimbledon ahead today. Yeah, it's almost as if the sporting gods have realised that the World Cup will soon be gone from us because Nadal, Djokovic in the men's semi-finals at Wimbledon last night were was absolutely brilliant. Uh, three sets before they, in classic Wimbledon style, build a brilliant stadium, uh, have an amazing floodlight system and then decided after 11pm it's just not right to be playing tennis for whatever reason. Well, you'll disturb the neighbours. Yeah, there's some sort of licensing issue there. Yeah, Sorry just, everybody, we have to go home in the middle of it's the... It's a little ungentlemanly to be playing <laughs> tennis after 11pm. So that's all at 1 o'clock today. Uh, after that then it's Serena Williams against Angelique Kerber Serena Williams looking for a 24th Grand Slam trophy 10 months after giving birth and almost losing her life while doing it so pretty, pretty unbelievable yeah. Yeah. thanks so much for getting in touch today you can listen to us throughout the week with daily shows in the Second Captain's World Service check us out on secondcaptains.com we're back here next Saturday 10am with the absolutely brilliant Ashling B looking forward to that thanks to Sheila Nivelle on sound Mark Morgan and Simon Hick produced the show Killian Down researched Marion Fanukin is up next thank you very much Kieran. thank you Owen. chat to you next week Second captain, first captain, whatever. They never got home, those, those, those boys.